There is a huge well of resolve, courage, bravery, connectedness that is available when people do go on their own existential journey of exploring what these feelings are within themselves around their awareness to environmental disruptions that we have to deal with. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who feel deeply and act with courage in the face of uncertainty. As we all work to protect what we love and change what we can and learn as we go, our awakened hearts are absolutely necessary partners for our critical thinking minds. Today's guest is Dr. Britt Ray. She is a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation in Global Health, Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Center on Climate Change and Planetary Health. Her research focuses on the mental health impacts of the ecological crisis. Britt is the creator of the weekly newsletter about staying sane in the climate crisis, Jen Dread, gendread.substack.com, and author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Britt has a PhD in science communications from the University of Copenhagen. Her first book is Rise of the Necrofauna, the Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. She has hosted several podcasts, radio, and TV programs with the BBC and the CBC and is a TED speaker. And here is Britt Ray. Welcome, Britt Ray, to What Could Possibly Go Right?, you know, we started the podcast right when the pandemic hit, and it's been two years for me of listening to people we call cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, as well as, you know, what I call social artists. It's not just my term. I heard it from Gene Houston, but people who feel deeply and have the courage to create in the face of the headwinds of our times. And your book, Climate Dread, is out now. And you say, I'm going to read from your website. Uh, climate environment related fears and anxieties are on the rise for everywhere. As with any type of stress, eco anxiety can lead uh, to burnout, avoidance, or disturbance of daily functioning. In Generation Dread, you seamlessly merge scientific knowledge with emotional insight to show how these intense feelings are a healthy response to the troubled state of the world. So that's from your website. And now I invite you to let it go <laughs> of the already spoken and to be in the moment. I know how easy it is when promoting a book to enter the groove of your elevator speech. And it's, so it's okay if you do it, it's okay if you don't, but maybe we'll find something fresh for both of us. Um, so you don't need me to narrate the headwinds. Uh, you are versed and articulate about the breakdowns upon us. I learned that we were both knocked off our moorings by reading Jem Bendel's deep adaptation paper, but we have also both found on the other side of grieving an ability to create with what is here to serve life more fully without the burden or the effort to control the sort of instrumental, I do this in order for that to happen. So your mastery of this field of threats and possibilities is clear 
So I just want to give you free reign in this conversation, especially as a cultural scout, this standing on the edge with grief, but not disabled by it, surveying the landscape ahead, open to potential, knowing the science is dire, but the story of the future is not yet written. So here we go. I give you our one question in the face of all that seems to be going awry, Britt, what could possibly go right? Wow. What an introduction and what potent questions that are just so fertile for thought. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. And yes, I am promoting my new book, Generation Dread, but I really just want to keep it fresh and authentic, not say things I've necessarily said before. So you seem like the perfect person to do that with. Yeah. What can possibly go right? I think a lot. I think that we are in a profound moment of collective wake up. We see that we've entered this psychoterratic state as the philosopher Glenn Albrecht talks about it. This is the felt um, sensations from the earth that is hurting that people can now understand through their own embodied experience. It's why we have tidal waves of eco anxiety and eco grief and people who have been living rather comfortable lives, uh, noticing this disturbance within themselves, as well as, of course, those on the front lines of climate trauma who have been dealing with environmental devastation for centuries, you know, through generations. Um, and in this moment, I think it's incredibly powerful because it's shaking people to their core. It's touching the nerves. It is really heightening our sense of mortality salience. So this awareness of death, um, confrontation with the end of the world as we have known it, so to speak, which really, of course, can frighten people and scare them or even conjure terror, uh, as well as rage in the face of the injustice of it all. And you know, ferociousness <laughs> from the animal within us. Uh, but these emotions all are deeply connected to love and to care and to compassion. We can't feel these things if we don't also understand the profound threat to, to what we are alive for, our, our relations to others, to the earth, to other species, to our nearest and dearest humans. And this, you know, two sides of the same coin being the love and the grief is incredibly powerful. It's not just that the grief of this time is important because it allows for some kind of profound self-reflection, although it does do that. These emotions, when you explore them and process them and come to the other side of them, they, they teach you things, they change you, and they heal you. They are truly transformative. And so the fact that we're in this moment of collective wake up, and of course it's not equally distributed, it's happening at different tempos for different folks, but it's here, every single media platform has done a think piece on eco-anxiety over the last year, <laughs> you know, um, particularly if you wind back to 2018 when the IPCC published that report outlining a world at 1.5 versus two degrees of warming, that seemed to be this catalyst for many people to become in touch with their environmental emotions who previously had only, you know, observed it intellectually, but not necessarily felt all that much. This was an unleashing of a lot of anxiety for many people. Um, but since then, it's just grown year on year in profound ways. I mean, it was around that publication of the paper that I started pivoting towards 
exploring the mental health impacts of the climate crisis and leaving my old field. But it is astounding to me as someone who's mired in this day in, day out, how much has even changed between now or in April 2022 compared to April 2021. Mm. Um, This is an incredible surge of momentum and care around these constructs in people's lives and them becoming relevant to the emotional experiences of many, even though, of course, we still have lots of people distanced enough, eyes closed enough to not be disturbed and their psychological defenses are still protecting them and they're kind of going on as though climate crisis isn't a big deal. But we also know this is about more than just the climate crisis, of course, it's biodiversity and you know, land transformation and water scarcity and food shortages and climate migration and stoking conflict and all the rest of it. So um, I think that these turbulent waters that are getting choppier that are also intersecting with synchronous crises such as the pandemic, right? Such as um, the glaring obviousness of systemic racism and marginalization, intergenerational trauma from the oppressiveness of the dominant systems that we live in that are really complex. Um, They're all coming to a head. And I think that that is an incredibly painful, but also potent, powerful, and radically hopeful time to be alive because we're talking about shifts in complex systems. We're talking about social tipping points as well as environmental tipping points. And I think that there is a huge um, well of resolve, courage, bravery, connectedness that is available when people do go on their own existential journey of exploring what these feelings are within themselves around their awareness to the, the environmental disruptions that we have to deal with. So I know from my own journey of learning to come to terms with this sense of despair um, and even at times hopelessness that these feelings are heavily underrated. (laughs) You know, people of course come out against them and that we must maintain hope Mm -hmm. and we can't let people fall into despair and fatalism will be its own self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course, fatalism is not the same as hopelessness and despair, but there is an incredible, um, wind that you can ride when you actually go to the bottom of that u-shaped curve when you descend and explore and get the support that you need to not stay there but to learn from it and be changed by it and be transformed by it and you can tap into this existential valve within yourself that i i truly believe when you open it unleashes a lot of love and connection and beauty inner clarity purpose and meaning so that when you're on the far side of it all the other distractions and the miasma of stuff that really is not that important that contemporary Western culture is laden with gets brushed aside and you can hone in on what is powerfully meaningful to you at this time that you are gifted enough to be alive to witness and experience as we go through all this change. So I think it's, it's very difficult and it's super beautiful all at the same time. And it's going to move people to action. And um, it's not just this external action that we also clearly need. I mean, that's pivotal. We need the political and psychological um, will 
to make system changes. Um, it's also about doing the inner work um, in groups and individually to relearn a lot of what we expect of the future, what we expect of ourselves and how we're going to show up right now. So I think that within that, if we're just going to start there, is that being this potential of the moment that's pregnant with possibility, I think that's a very uh, special place that has a lot of positivity within it. And that's, I think, where we are. I, I think that's so beautiful. I mean, it so reflects everything that's, that's been true for me over the last umpteen years. And I, I feel that as well, I think because my sensitivity is, is attuned to it. But I also feel that in the present moment, part of the choppy waters that we're in, that we're getting through, that some people are being conscious of and welcoming as a maturation crisis, other people are just going through the choppy waters. And I mean, I, I would also attribute polarization mm-hmm. to this moment. You know, and this moment isn't solving necessarily polarization. It's driving polarization. It's not solving the anxiety. It's driving the anxiety. And when people are anxious and they're not conscious of what the source of their anxiety is, a lot of it is blame. Let's just, <laughs> let's find out who's doing this to us. I, I don't mean to be a downer, but I just like, there are so many possibilities to sort of like, you know, some spiritual traditions say every step you take, a whole array of new possibilities open up. And you're talking about one of them. And, and can you just reflect a little bit on the relationship of those of us who are welcoming this crisis of maturation mm. and those who are in reaction to it? Mm. and making choices that are antithetical. We only have to talk about the war in Ukraine, um, making choices that are antithetical to what really must happen now. You know, it's like I watch all of that, you know, all of that, you know, driving refugees and blowing up things and sending all this stuff into the environment. So it's, you know, and I see it, you know, my heart is open to that, but my, my mind also says like, okay, fine. This is a piece of what's cracking and yeah. the effort to just keep in control. So would you reflect on that? Cause I don't think I'm the only one who thinks about that. You're certainly not the only one who thinks about that. Yeah. And then one thing that I do have a lot of concern around is just how far right we are going to swing as things get tougher as a global community, because strong men with simple answers to complex problems are where a lot of people who feel their fear activated can offload some of that worry and get a false sense of being in control. And um, of course we see people with power in that vein clutching to what they can do to protect that authoritarian command over resources and dominant ways of relating and of course that's what exactly what needs to be dissolved and reformed through an an ethics of partnership and that's a lot to ask of a world filled with toxic petro masculinity right (laughs) running states petro masculinity i love that (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's daunting for sure. But um, I think that what is amazing about this moment and hopeful from some kind of collective unconscious place even um, is that we're being invited to relearn our own innate wisdom to be able to tap into what we know to be true about why we're here and what life offers us, the things that really bring us joy and fulfillment in terms of a culture of care. We're being invited into reckoning with our own potential for emotional intelligence so that we can reconnect to the parts of us that that care and that take responsibility in life as the psychoanalyst Sally Weintraub so wonderfully puts it in her theory of the climate bubble and her book, The Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis. Um, and of course, our, it's like the, the film Don't Look Up, if you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of doing that deep interrogation and reflection on emotional intelligence or what this inner wisdom could be, we're distracted with celebrity culture and, you know, <laughs> hot takes on social media and, um, I mean, it, it feels all the more just dark in its humor that as we are being invited to do this meaningful, spiritual, psychological work, we are increasingly getting tied up in an incredibly uh, high profit industry that is paid to kind of chop up our attention spans, <laughs> you know, in terms of the reign of tech. And um the endless distractions that we're navigating and, and so on and so forth. So it does feel kind of mythological yes. in terms of the times we're in and what we're being called to do and the challenges that we face, not only the real physical challenges out there in the, in the biosphere, but in the, or the political systems, but just the, the challenges psychologically. But then maybe because it, the sharper the, the blade becomes that we're dancing on, the more potent that potential is for change. That's, it, it feels like there's some kind of momentum heading to a climax. Um, not that I'm saying there's gonna be some day where the world flips inside out and we're a new, new species and we've evolved, but um, it, it does stir these emotions in people which cause them to do that work and, if supported and if open, hopefully help change in that kind of, you know, great turning way right. that Joanna Macy and others talk about. You know, it's like I, I went through my, my climate grief, my species extinction grief. You know, I went through, you know, spent, as I've mentioned to you, you know, 30 years of my life trying to stop the harm and then went through deep despair because, you know, Nothing that I or anybody that I was connected to, and I built these yeah. whole networks around sustainability, it didn't pierce the heart of whatever it is we needed to pierce the heart of. You know, we didn't, get, mm. and so the harm was upon us. Mm-hmm. And so I, but I got to acceptance. The phrase that turned it around for me was sort of a little bit like the serenity prayer. Uh, I can accept the unacceptable, not because it's acceptable, because it is not acceptable, but because it is. And now I Mm -hmm. think I've had the same sense of the war on Ukraine. It's like, 
oh no i thought we were beyond this you know Mm. this too you gotta Mm -hmm. be kidding folks we just did two years of pandemic and we're sent to our rooms we were supposed to think about it you know and but here we are and so i can accept the unacceptable not because it's acceptable but because it is what it is and i it's like you said you know there's this authoritarian takeover because people are are so stressed can't make sense of things Mm -hmm. and Maybe that too is, as you say, part of that knife edge. Mm. And maybe I got caught up once again in, you know, the resistance is important. You've got to like make yourself visible and say what's wrong, et cetera. But internally, spiritually, you know, day by day, denying the validity, the fact that this is happening. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, unless you want to talk about the people who are are sort of falling into the fold of autocrats, we don't have to go there. Right. But if you had some thoughts you wanted to um, say. I think it's a really big and perplexing question as to how we can more effectively relate to the people in our family, the people in the grocery store, the people at our kids' schools, the people we might work with who are, let's say, on the other side of the seesaw if we're talking about polarization, um, and how to reach them. Uh, there, There is a lot that can be explored in terms of not telling so much and listening, rather. Listening is a mode of connecting and trying to understand other people's aspirations and desires and values and beliefs about what's going on. And, you know, the work of people like Renee Lertzman, who's a climate psychologist and others who focus on compassion-based techniques for going beyond divisive splitting when it comes to how we're talking about these times, Um, really stress that we only raise people's defenses when we try to get a certain point across. And of course, that's true. And all the science communication research that I've studied in my PhD back that up. It's basically hitting people over the head with facts or, you know, coming out with some kind of moralizing, grandstanding, um, being priggish about this stuff is, is definitely only working against your interests. And we need to have a a heart open approach, which is kind of like what you're talking about with acceptance. So finding ways of accepting, not because it's acceptable, but because it is. Here, it's about not being attached to the outcome. You can't be attached to the outcome of other people's relating to this moment, which is very hard to do when so much is at stake. Because when you're attached to the outcome, you start immediately into that mode of being the persuader you're trying to convince you're trying to bring someone on your side and that is inherently manipulative and it also is something that they feel and will get them to dig their heels in harder right when it becomes this power tug of war over something very important like dealing with this moment and transforming towards it positively so, so that's a really strange mental gymnastics exercise right there is how to let go of attachment to the outcome of how other people in moments of high polarization are actually responding. 
and then being compassionate about what they think and what they believe. And um, hopefully being able to have enough of a, of a conversation at depth that you can unleash some of their own ambivalence, the parts of them that aren't just in line with a single voice, a, a unifying self that knows all and acts accordingly, because that doesn't exist. We're all made up of multiple differing selves. And sometimes those selves are in conflict with each other and it could create cognitive dissonance or this feeling of ambivalence and general discomfort. And uh, you want to be able to allow enough space for that person's ambivalence to be heard. And then maybe they will explore it themselves because they feel like they're authoring it. It's really not going to stick if it's not our own story, if we don't feel like we're trying it on for size of our own volition. And, um, and I think those ideas, you know, we have the body of work around deep canvassing, which is a way of doing canvassing, door-to-door canvassing that is really heart-based, compassionate, open, and, and really takes a lot more time um, when you're trying to talk with people about political issues that you might not see eye to eye on. And similarly, motivational interviewing, which is this anti-intuitive force of behavior change when talking about difficult issues, developed originally to try and get people off of harmful behaviors like smoking and, you know, drinking too much, but has been brought into the climate psychology space as a way to talk when, of course, behavior change is the goal, but you cannot cling to persuading someone because, you know, it's not going to work. I think there's a lot to be said there, which brings out our capacity for emotional intelligence and different types of relating. And I think it's bioacumulafe who says something along the lines of like, the times are so dangerous that we can't afford to go too fast. Right. And, you know, you really need to slow down and not slap the same old approaches onto the moment, but, but rethink this relational crisis. It's a crisis of connection. Yeah. And I think we need to tend to those connections in in very thoughtful and caring ways, which means trying very different things because I mean, especially in, in, let's say, contemporary North America, but many other places too, you know, the hyper-individualism has done a lot to rip us away from that ability to be caring and tender with with connections. And I think that's where we need to put a lot of focus. I want to also just pick out this thing about as we are learning deep canvassing and motivational interviewing, and as we're learning that, we're also being taught, and I think we're being taught compassion. Mm. I think that, you know, going into the conversation with a different technique, but a, a similar outcome, like at the end of the day, I don't you know, yes, I want to connect with you, but I really want you to change. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I just desperately need every conversation to result in one fewer car. Right, right. (laughs) And so even that people can smell it, you know, I think every moment of learning to love better actually contributes in some way to the capacity of other people to accept what's going on. Maybe we're not promoting fewer cars. We're promoting acceptance. Hmm. It's, it's pretty far deep down the transformation, the inner transformation, your rabbit hole, that thing of like, you know, giving up control and then giving up control again, and then giving up control. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I also say 
you know, my work has led me to this, you know, thing for my tombstone, which is, it's a relational world. It's not a billiard ball world where, you know, one ball is knocking another ball is knocking another ball. You know, that mm-hmm. is a very painful world, mm. you know, with winning <laughs> and winning is knocking yeah. everybody off the field. Right. But it's a relational world where somehow or another, it, the very nature of nature is relational. I, I Maybe I'm just observing my own process, but it's this feeling of being asked again and again to let go of yet one more layer of my concepts of rightness, even though I'm right. <laughs> you know, I mean, even though yeah. I'm right about it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not right spiritually. I might be right in terms of data, but if I break connection in order to push somebody, I don't know how this mm. turns out, Britt, but I'm just saying that this is what comes to me as yeah. I listen to you. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me because vulnerability is the most powerful place to arrive, I think, with all of this stuff. We wouldn't be able to live the way we do if we could feel the pain of the animals in the slaughterhouses and of the sea-shelled animals and marine ecosystems that can no longer produce their shells because the water is acidifying and all of the people in war-torn, horrific circumstances all of the migrants who are terrified don't know what it's going to be like what they can wake up in the morning. I mean, if we could feel that, if we were open through our capacity for vulnerability to then access other people's vulnerability in that relational way, everything would be different. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, denial is so profound because it is the giant steel wall that allows us to not feel and to turn away and to turn away and to turn away. And of course, there's the corporate malfeasance, ideologically inspired type of denial that we often talk about, but there's the soft denial that we all have that allows us to get through the day in the face of devastation without crumbling from it, how painful it is to be in touch with all that. But the kind of vulnerability spiritually or the acceptance of, of letting go of control and knowing that in the face of nature as well, like it's an emergent complex system. We can't control it. We keep trying to, we're dominating, but Hey, we accidentally light the ocean on fire when we do <laughs> yeah, as we, as happened not too long ago with, um, you know, a pipe bursting or the, the, huge BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico or like any other mega engineering project that at a certain point nature emerges, things go wrong. um, And we see we, we aren't as clever in our attempts to dominate anyway. So really leaning into that vulnerability and lack of control, I think is, is spiritually right because that's the way things are, but also it allows for, deeper compassion and orienting us towards the pains of others, which then means that we ourselves act differently. Um, So I think what you're saying makes, makes a lot of sense and tons of people are clinging with white knuckles so hard 
um, to anything that prevents them from feeling vulnerable, you know? Exactly. I think of, you know, when you were talking, the other thing I thought of was that to feel takes time to think is much, it's much faster than feeling. Yeah. And, and I think with enough time, we could feel all the things you mentioned. It's to yeah. feel is to heal. You know, it's another mm-hmm. little motto of my podcast is like what I've learned from my guests is we can't heal the world if we can't feel the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to try totally. to fix it, but we're actually, you know, fixing is not what we need to oh my gosh, do. Yeah. It's, it's healing. I'm going to back up because I have one yeah. other question I have for sure. you. Yeah. Do you see that, you know, like teenagers and down have a different orientation to this climate crisis than people who were schooled in a, in a sort of a technological solutionary era? Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up there. I mean, I, I think there's no shortage of technical technological solutions that are still used in education of young people today. Uh, you know, the power of startup culture and Silicon Valley and innovation and all that is still very much with us, which pumps out those, those ideas of visionary solutions for the moment. I think it's that young people cannot afford spiritually, psychologically, they cannot afford to not be focused on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's causing them huge distress. I'm extremely concerned about it. Um, it is so much worse for young people who are feeling eco-anxious and grieving and, and angry, um, not just because the environment isn't doing well and they're upset naturally because of the breakdown in our life support systems, which then becomes an embodied response that they feel. That's true. And young people are also very close to nature in a way that adults often kind of they grow out of because of all the other distractions and commitments to things that are not right, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, status climbing and domination and all this stuff. But um, it's so much worse for young people because they feel like they're living in a culture where the adults don't care, where the adults have left the building, where they're being ga- gaslit by political leaders who either deny it outright or, or say that they're taking adequate action and don't worry, but then obviously they're not. Um, and so that feeling of betrayal that so many young people mm-hmm. carry with them really leads to despair. Despair that is not easy to just move through after a couple of days, but despair that is coming with so much other heaviness um, you know, of course, the pandemic we know has been terrible for young people's mental health and people's mental health everywhere, but especially young people. Um, and then the detrimental effects of social media that, you know, requires a different conversation to talk about what the nuance it deserves. But um, I'm, I'm very concerned, of course, about the skyrocketing anxiety, depression, suicidality in young people. And when you do the calculations, <laughs> I mean, the climate crisis is just clearly a part of it. it. It really is. And we've got the research on that as well. But often we're still having these siloed discussions about young people's despair right now, especially in America, that is not factoring the climate crisis in. But the New York Times just did this huge piece about teenage suicide because of the pandemic and social media. And they did not even mention the word climate change. And it's just, 
so glaringly obvious, plus we have the research, but you, we need to stop splitting them off as separate issues as though this is only, the climate concern is only affecting a few. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a foreboding sense of betrayal um, and moral injury that young people are living with because of the inaction of adults who are saying, don't worry, we're here to protect you. And then absolutely not showing the receipts for it. So, um, and I think that's different from people who are older, who have been, you know, really nicely groomed by neoliberal rhetoric about individual solutions and technological fixes, being able to provide the kind of onward, upwards human progress. We always, don't worry, like we'll always find a way of our ingenuity, um, which, uh, yeah, I mean, it just was not the same with my generation. I'm a millennial. And of course, I've known about climate change for a long time. I used to go to rallies and marches and all that in when I was 17. But it, it's none of my peers were relating to the climate crisis in the way that Gen Z youth are today. And I think that, um, you know, there are, there are lots of reasons why that it's just about not being able to fend off the obviousness of climate disasters now, but it's also intersected with these other crises that are connected to the larger source of all of this pain, you know, like colonialism and systemic racism and the unequal effects of the pandemic and the climate crisis. Young people are are seeing all of that and also being able to connect it to why can't I afford a house? Like, why won't I have a right to a pension? You know, what on earth is it about the systems that older people have partied with, you know, that they've been able to enjoy their lives with um, that are now breaking down so much so that it just feels like they've cannibalized my future entirely. And it, it's a it's a gradual process, right? And my my generation was starting to get squeezed by it where the millennials were always the ones first talking about the not being able to afford a house and not, no job security and, and this and that. But, um, you know, if you follow the trend line, it becomes more acute in those who are younger. So um, now I'm not even able to recall exactly what your question is but, these but are it's my okay you answer yeah, yeah yeah generational differences so I'd love a wind up just something where people are asking always what can I do of course because yeah. our hearts are moved and we want to do something and so mm-hmm. I've heard in here that feeling is doing yes actually feeling is doing yeah and um yeah. So what else would you leave us with this idea of appropriate doing in relationship with where we actually are accepting the unacceptable because it is, you know, what would you leave us with? Feeling is doing is a very powerful way of summing up a lot of my beliefs. Um, but that's because the doing part of feeling means that you find new orientations in terms of how you're going to be at this time. And I think that a huge issue of importance is climate justice and really understanding who is most vulnerable, not only in the future, but now and already, and how those of us who might be doing by feeling can really pay attention to their unique needs and work to partner with 
their journeys that they're on respond to their calls for support in ways that don't recenter our own needs. Like if you're privileged, (laughs) if you have the capacity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is really, really, really life or death for so many millions of people. And there's so much that we can do with this spiritual transformation to focus on that and understand the unequal aspects and then bring our talents towards trying to close the gap with this massive existential inequality that we have. I think that there's so many ways to do it. Of course, depending on where you're at in your life, you can change your work. You can do something different in your day-to-day that focuses on this. You can donate. You can um, spend your time making art that you think channels, you know, the right kind of energy towards the issue. There's, there's tons of ways in which one might uh, reinvest the emotional energy that, that comes with feeling these intensities. So um, yeah, I just, I just want to put that there because I think there's a danger in, in talking so much about acceptance it depends on what, what we mean by acceptance. If we accept, if it's about accepting that these times are incredibly dangerous and the world is changing, massive turbulent changes are ahead, whether we like them or not. And there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and, um, you know, misery. I can accept that because I know that's what's going on, but acceptance doesn't mean and so then I, I accept and I reflect on it as it happens. Acceptance for me requires then knowing and harm can be reduced and it doesn't need to become as bad as it will otherwise become. And so what can I do to reduce that harm and reach out and repair those relations mm. that you're talking about? The world is relational. Um, and what's what can I use whatever power and talent I have to, to help create a platform where others can join me. I think that um, I get, I get a little confused sometimes when I talk with people who seem to, to really resonate with the idea of like the earth as hospice, which is really acceptance based. The idea that this is all happening and there's not much that we can do to, to meaningfully change it. I find very dangerous if that's what acceptance means, but if if acceptance means and you can step into your power for doing harm reduction work, then I think that's great. Um, so I wonder, I wonder with the communities that you interact with the most, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea of Earth as hospice, like what does acceptance fully entail? Well, glad you asked um, <laughs> because uh, my, my friend Lynn Twist, um, speaks often about this idea, which I, I actually think might have been generated by Dwayne Elgin, uh, who maybe took it from somebody else. But it's like we're in a dual process. We're hospicing that which is dying and must die because it's reached its senescence and it's, you know, but we're midwifing what's coming into being, mm. you know, it's like, it's like when you look at that Joanna Macy, I think that her picture is, you know, there's one curve that's going like this, but there's another mm-hmm. curve that's coming out of it. This mm-hmm. is the midwifing part of it. And, you know, it's not that you're going, you know, as a midwife, you're not inventing the baby. it's not that you're controlling a situation and you're making a baby you Mm -hmm. are noticing where the change is emerging and you're 
you're nurturing that. And I think it's very aligned with what you're saying about mm. intersectionality and about, you know, the, the, uh, that once you get it, actually, the work is to um, midwife, you know, it's like to listen for the voices of not only the voices of pain, who are who people who are at the butt end of the problem, but to listen to um, the wisdom of people who have endured through the pain, which is, you know, very much African-Americans, indigenous people. Yeah. When I listen, I was like, I am more amazed by what I'm hearing as more and more indigenous and African-American leaders are allowing us to listen into their conversations. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like, that is like, I, I just feel like, oh, that's truth. I feel like I can, I can smell truth. You know, it's yeah. not that I could, I could <laughs> speak right. what they're speaking, but I can mm-hmm. sniff it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love your term about reinvesting, you know, that basically everybody thinks about that in terms of money, but you're reinvesting your life energy in the midwife part of the cycle. Yes. And a lot of it is, you know, I do, I do feel that this whole process do, can get aborted with hmm. people my age who either have a gloss, you know, spiritual gloss on, oh, we're transforming, isn't this great? Um, you know, as though once again, it's an individual, it's definitely individual, we have to take responsibility, but this is, we are individuals in a system that's in crisis. And so our, our healing is not just so that we can make it through, it's our, you know, the healing of, of the, gen- the collective is happening through us. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of, you know, individualism can grab us, you know, again and again, you know, we're just about to like get it, you know, and then it's like, oh, look how smart I am. Right. <laughs> so I um, it is a perilous path. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, what I'm talking to you, you know, your level of clarity and the depth of your scholarship on this is such that it's easy to listen to what you have to say because it's it's accountable and reliable and well thought through you know i you know i come from like two generations back and i mostly was like my hair's on fire i'm screaming (laughs) so you know and i didn't have the scholarship because the scholarship wasn't really there yet um but you have it and i uh i just guess what my wind up would be that is like just all blessings upon you, Aww. all blessings upon you, Brit. It's a big bowl of a pain and possibility that you're carrying and it's full, full, full. And, wow. uh, you know, with your book coming out, that's a big job. And, you know, you finding your way to stay at ease and grounded as all the expectations and challenges are coming towards you. So, Thank you so much. Blessings, 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 blessings. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.